0: Hello and welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. We're up to episode 22 in this series, and this week the story shifts to Kimberley itself. Earlier, around podcasts 2 and 3, I described how this town was really in the hands of the De Beers Mining Company with its owner, Cecil John Rhodes, very much in charge of affairs. However, the actual military commander-in-chief of the town was Lieutenant-Colonel R.G. Kekovich, and in this town there had been a four-month struggle between Kekovich and one of the world's richest men at the time, Mr. Rhodes. It worked like this. Rhodes was De Beers and De Beers was Kimberley. His colossal ego had reduced the siege at times to a dangerous melodrama. Rhodes had implied during the siege that if the British didn't Hurry up and rescue him. He may hand over the town to the Boers. We need to go back a few days in February 1900 to reveal what was happening and how Lord Roberts, who was in command of the British Army Corps and based just south of Kimberley near the Modder River, lost patience with Rhodes and had actually ordered Kekovic to lock up anyone who threatened a surrender to the Boers. The Boers had been shelling Kimberley constantly for four months, morning, noon and night. On Friday, February 9, 1900, Kekovich was visited by the mayor of Kimberley who warned him that Rhodes had planned a public meeting to discuss the British army's seemingly laggardly approach to the relief. Kekovic warned the mayor that all the Boers had to do was drop a shell on the gathering and dozens would die, maybe hundreds. But there were other reasons. In this odd war, there were Boer sympathisers living in Kimberley itself. The Afrikaners amongst the population numbered apparently around 10,000 out of the 20,000 whites still living in Kimberley, although many had abandoned the diamond mining capital of the world just before hostilities began. They could have passed information on about the planned gathering and any other details. So Rhodes visited Kekovic after the mayor on the same Friday the 9th and threatened him, demanding to be briefed about British battle plans. Kekovich refused, knowing that Rhodes was a notorious blabbermouth and that he was a civilian. So instead, Rhodes published an editorial the next day in the paper he owned called the Diamond Fields Advertiser. That's a newspaper which began printing in 1873 and continues to be published to this day. Rhodes's editorial was a typically bombastic bit of diatribe penned by the editor, but no doubt originating from the De Beers' owner, that went on to condemn the military authorities. And it said, We have stood a siege that is rapidly approaching the duration of the siege of Paris. Is it unreasonable when our women and children are being slaughtered and our buildings fired to expect something better than that a large British army should remain inactive in the presence of eight or nine thousand peasants? By peasants, he meant Boer soldiers. However, the editorial was a flagrant breach of British military censorship, Kekovich ordered the editor arrested, but Rhodes ordered the editor to go and hide in one of his mine shafts instead. So that's the pettiness of Rhodes right there. His crudeness extended still further. After the editor was safely out of sight, Rhodes rushed to Kekovich's HQ and actually said to him, You forbade a public meeting, but I have held the meeting all the same. It was attended by the twelve leading citizens of Kimberley. What they'd done is prepare a lengthy petition, which Rhodes wanted Kekovich to send to Lord Roberts, who was about to launch his army steamroller of troops northwards to Bloemfontein. And we know that because of Rhodes' hollering and complaining that Roberts actually changed his battle plans, sending a flying column of around 5,000 cavalry to Kimberley first, just in case Rhodes hands upped and surrendered to the Boers. Roberts also knew that when Kimberley was relieved, though, the public relations coup would have been great. He didn't tell Kekovich that at all. So Kekovich then promised to send a short précis of the Rhodes petition to Roberts, which caused Rhodes to explode with anger. He accused Kekovitch of keeping him in the dark about the relief, repeated his insults against the British army and finally clenched his fist and then made a rush at Kekovitch, shouting in his falsetto voice, I know what damned rot your signallers are wasting their time in signalling. You low, damned, mean cur, Kekovitch, you deny me at your peril which is a fairly shocking thing for a civilian to be shouting at the officer commanding of a town under siege, particularly when they were apparently on the same side. Kekovitch rose from his desk at this, his face ashen and eyes blazing, but before he could knock Rhodes down, the De Beers owner turned tail and ran out of the door, followed by the mayor. What had actually set all this off were the repeated losses by the British at the hands of the Boers south of Kimberley. The battles of Moda River and then Marcus Fontaine, as well as other skirmishes where the British seemed to be sending hundreds of wounded men back to Cape Town, had shocked the empire. There was another reason for the inhabitants of this besieged town to be fearful. In these four months, over 7,000 shells fired by the Boers had hit buildings, hospitals, homes, mines. But these were little shells, nine or seven pounders, which caused little damage and death. Some didn't explode at all or hit the mine slag heaps and were smothered in the loose ash-like deposits. At the same time, the garrison's own artillery was weak and had been completely outgunned by the Boers. They had their own seven-pounders, which the townsfolk referred to scathingly as pop guns. Unknown, though, Rhodes's mining engineers, headed up by George Labram, an American, had been building their own big gun. They had improvised a 4-inch gun which fired 28-pound shells that could cause great damage to the Boers and then named this gun Long Cecil. On the week of 7th of February, Long Cecil was christened by the firing of one of these heavy shells 10 kilometers away and it also appeared to strike a direct hit on a Boer lager near the water pumping station with some injuries. This was equivalent though to stirring up a hornet's nest. The Boers didn't wait long to respond. A few days later, the Boers opened fire with their own gun, the Kriosot 6-inch called Long Tom. An officer on guard saw the puff of smoke near the outlying dam where the Boers were camped, and then the 90-pound shells began to hit Kimberley. This was a completely different weapon. Long Tom, though, had had a miraculous recovery. It was the same gun that the British thought they'd destroyed across the country near Ladysmith in Natal, but the Boers had taken Long Tom back to Pretoria for repairs at the railway workshops. They lopped off part of the damaged barrel, so its range was reduced, but it still fired 90-pound shells, which could blow up an entire building. There was panic in Kimberley when the first Long Tom shell landed. Buildings were on fire, while citizens screamed and ran through the streets. Everything was, though, made worse by Long Tom's shells themselves. When they exploded, the bits of shrapnel made a chillingly, airy, wailing sound like the ghosts of the dead. So from then on, when the man posted on the top of the conning tower saw the puff of smoke from Long Tom, he waved a flag, and buglers posted throughout Kimberley then played the G note on their bugles, which meant, Take cover! In Ladysmith, where Long Tom had been based, citizens had had 30 seconds to find cover, but here in Kimberley, the Boers were much closer. Civilians had only 15 seconds, upon hearing the bugle, to flinging themselves into a trench or a dugout or under a bridge. In three days, Long Tom achieved more damage than the 7,000 shells fired over a period of four months. Hundreds of times in the coming days, this terrible weapon lobbed shells on the town, killing many civilians. One of the victims, in a twisted irony, was George Labram, who'd built Long Cecil. His death alone caused morale to almost break down. Every crisis has its hero, and Labram was an inventor who, by pure dint of his own initiative, was a character who led by example. His first invention was the 155-foot-high conning tower, which meant Kikovic could keep track of the Boer movements. Soon after Kimberley was surrounded, he also built a massive underground cold storage plant inside one of the De Beers mines to house the beef. With the Boers controlling the grazing lands around Kimberley, the large herd had to be slaughtered and, without his cold storage invention, they would have rotted and the townsfolk would have had far less meat over the next four months. Labram also built a remarkable pump to reach water deep underground in the Vesselton mine as the Boers had closed down the pumping station. George Labram also invented gunpowder charges for the 7-inch shells, then designed and manufactured the shells themselves when they began to run out. But this American scorned the taking of shelter rule. In fact, he had made a grand gesture by standing as the shells poured down on the diamond capital of the world. He was killed on a Friday night as he dressed for dinner in his room at the Grand Hotel. They pulled his body, smashed by a shell, from his room near his wash basin, headless with bow tie. Hundreds of people turned up at his funeral, which was held at night in an attempt to avoid bombardment. But Long Tom continued to fire throughout the service, hitting two private houses, the railway line and then the hospital. So this fearful barrage led to Rhodes's terror and his editorial that led to the editor hiding in a mine. However, these increasing moments of terror were a long time coming. The four months had led to the townfolk' diet becoming increasingly monotonous. Some planted vegetables, but most could not. And it's here that we must discuss the treatment of black residents, which was scandalous. Ration cards had been issued after Christmas as it became clear that the relief column was in trouble. Meat, bread, vegetables were sold at a fixed rate to the long queues of only white civilians at the market, while blacks were forced to fend for themselves on the outskirts of the town. Worse, the rations were highest for the garrison of troops and lowest for the blacks. A pound of bread and half a pound of meat a day for the soldiers, 12 ounces and 4 ounces respectively for the whites, just under a pound of millies for blacks. No meat. Luxuries like milk, butter beer and cheese, would only be issued if someone had a medical certificate. After Labram's cold room of beef and mutton was emptied, the townsfolk began eating their horses, then the mules. Blacks weren't allowed to buy meat or vegetables, even if they had the money. This hapless racism is often excused as a fact of the time that blacks were tougher than whites and could handle poor food better, all part of the rampant colonial hatefulness of the time. When some white folk in Kimberley reacted in horror, they were quickly shut up. This kind of treatment was being repeated in all siege towns around South Africa and would be a source of great anger after the war. It was used by black nationalists like Sol Blyke, who was besieged himself in Mafeking, to prove that the white government after the war had no interest in humans who were dark-skinned. While tens of thousands of black men fought alongside British and Boer in these three years, it was in the urban areas where the true nature of racism of the age was illuminated. Out on the felt, it was survived together. The towns, though, turned comrades into competitors. Just think about this. Infant mortality rate in Kimberley, which ran at over 50% for whites during the siege, was 94% amongst blacks. So out of 100 babies born to colored and black residents, only six survived. Of course, Rhodes was one of those at the forefront of ensuring that the 10,000 black mine workers remained in a virtual prison under a wire netting called the Kimberley compound. But this is not to say that Rhodes wanted them dead. They were to be required to mine his diamonds when the war ended, so that's absurd. It was more like the Nazis when their slave labor dried up. He was trying to keep as many alive as possible to kick start his mining as soon as hostilities ended. They ensured their black fellow citizens had just enough to eat to survive, but these people were actually starving. They were from across South Africa and had walked or taken the train or wagons to Kimberley hearing about the diamond discovery in 1860s. Amazulu, Basutu, Fingo and Isikplaza were mostly from outside of the Northern Cape region, so they had nowhere to go even if they had managed to get out of town and then managed to avoid the Boers. Rhodes had put the black townsfolk to work at the start of the siege, planting a long corridor of vines as well as an array of fruits and vegetables. It was four months later That some had begun to produce, and these were carried by black workers to the white markets. But down in the compound, 1,500 cases of scurvy were reported because blacks were not given basic fresh food. Black men carried brimming baskets of grapes, nectarines and peaches for Cecil John Rhodes and his imperial friends at the sanatorium hotel. A few hundred meters away, men, women and children lay dying with bloated stomachs, unable to seek shelter from the Boer bombardments. Five hundred would starve to death before the siege was lifted. This has always been a blight on the memory of the siege and cannot be washed away by grand imperial gestures. It was in the matter of religion, though, where the siege of Kimberley was also different to other towns. One of the curious anomalies of the war was that, unlike at Ladysmith, where the Boers shelled the town 24-7, all day, all night, all week, all month, in Kimberley, the Boers stopped at precisely 11.59 on Saturday night, to begin bombardments again at precisely 0.001 on Monday morning. The Sabbath was to be respected, even if the hospitals weren't. As the Black Labour Force starved, the effect of the Boer Long Tom was immediate. Whites who had avoided hard labour like digging and picking food. After the first week of Long Tom's terrible hits, white men suddenly found the need to pick up a pick and shovel and hacked at the ground in a blind funk that first Sunday. Then Rhodes gave orders for the remaining coal to be loaded into the steam engines and the large mine lifts to be recommissioned. He sent out notices inviting the townsfolk to meet at eight every night when they'd be lowered to a safe underground section of his mine in what Thomas Pakenham calls a coup de theatre, spiriting people away in the treasure chests of De Beers. What really happened was mass panic. 2,000 women and children appeared at 5.30 pm, demanding to be let down the mine. It was fortunate for the British that the Boers appeared to have taken a break with the long tom, or the effect of 90 pound shells falling amongst the tightly gathered townsfolk could have been catastrophic. Underground, the situation was worse. People were trapped in the small mine galleries, packed together like sardines. It must have been terrible if you were claustrophobic. Black residents, though, were left to face the terrible Long Tom on the surface under their net in their compound. And also on the surface, the fact that General French had broken through the Boer lines was now common knowledge, and Rhodes actually began to prepare a feast for the cavalry. Last week we heard how Boer General Cronier had broken camp after Lord Robert's massive force had begun to cross the Rit and Modal Rivers, and then Cronier took his force northeast towards Bloemfontein in retreat, At the same time, French's cavalry were in full charge, sweeping across the felt like a torpedo towards Kimberley. A German military attaché watching wrote that French's charge was brilliant, a masterstroke. But was it? As French's men galloped, they stopped for nothing. His lances speared some Boers on the way. They lost a few themselves. Finally, the might of the British Empire seemed to be having an effect after failing so miserably for four months. An immense dust cloud appeared south of Kimberley and it was General French expending himself and his horses to save roads, instead of cutting off Cronier and his large mobile Boer army with its slow-moving heavy guns. The bodies of the British horses were now scattered across the felt in a macabre trail like fat bloated Hansel and Gretel crumbs. The horses from England in particular died in large numbers as they had not acclimatised before this gallop in midsummer in South Africa. The final irony here is that Rhodes was about to be saved, but the new mobile force that the British had built, this fine flying column, this cavalry division of 5,000, was virtually destroyed as an effective fighting force for the next few months because of their rush to save the man who owned the diamonds. In Kimberley, the children began running about, shouting they could see the dust storm, which heralded this mighty charging 5,000-strong cavalry charge. The Boers could see it too, and on Thursday, 15th of February, at about lunchtime, Long Tom fired its last 90-pound shell into the center of town, and the Boers then withdrew. At 3.30pm the front riders passed Beaconsfield slag heaps to the south and the vanguard of the relief column appeared headed up by Remington's Tigers, that's the cavalry unit made up of South Africans. Behind them the Scots greys and then some women of Kimberley ran up and tried to pull a few men from their horses, they were so excited. One trooper dismounted and was hugged by the now respectful ladies. But of course they were British first, so there wasn't too much in the way of blatant over the top celebration. Kekevich mobilized some of his troops in an attempt to head after the Boer long tom team as they dragged this powerful and fearful weapon away from Kimberley. Rhodes, meanwhile, was free to host General French, along with a few dozen bottles of champagne and whiskey he had stashed away just for this occasion. French had been warned about Rhodes and his bleating. In fact the only reason why French was now sitting at the sanatorium hotel being wined and dined was because Rhodes had threatened the entire British army should they not come to save him first. But this dislike seemed to dissipate in the face of Rhodes's suave ways. He laid on a masterful banquet for the tired and hungry officers Kekovitch then appeared in the banquet hall and said he wanted to talk to French, his fellow officer, in order to seek instructions. Rhodes pushed forward when he heard the shouting and said, You shan't see French. This is my house. Get out of it. Kekovich ignored Rhodes and went upstairs to where French was alone in a private room. The most incredible thing then happened. French verbally abused Kekovich, his fellow officer, for allegedly being tyrannical towards the malicious Tabir's owner. It got worse for Kekovich. Two days later, Kekovich entered his office HQ in Lenox Street, Kimberley, but found his desk occupied. Colonel Porter, who was the commanding officer of the 1st Cavalry Brigade, had been appointed garrison commander in Kekovich's place, and General French didn't even have the courtesy to inform Kekovich. French was back in the saddle, far away, galloping after Lord Roberts. The price of victory in Kimberley had been high. Hundreds of black workers had starved to death, while black and white infants had died in their dozens. But the biggest blunder was Rhodes and Milner, the Cape Governor, who'd ordered Kimberley garrisoned in the first place back in October 1899. Rhodes had wanted to protect his precious diamonds at all costs, and the result was many deaths and a shattered cavalry. A week ago, I commanded the best mounted regiment in the British Army, wrote a cavalry commander. And now it is absolutely ruined. And thus Kimberley was relieved. De Beers was handing out champagne to the press. At long last, for the British, their numerical superiority had led to success, and the clouds that now hung over the felt obscuring the sun and moon were dust clouds raised by the huge army commanded by Lord Roberts. And ahead of this force, Free State Boer Commander General Cronier was desperately trying to make his escape, with thousands of burghers as well as the women and children who'd accompanied his army. Well, the scene is now set for the Battle of Paardeberg, which is where the first real Boer bungle of the Anglo Boer War took place, and forever cemented in the minds of the burghers the weak leadership qualities of one General Cronier. So join me next week for episode 23. In the meantime, please rate the show on iTunes and remember to head off to our website, abwarpodcast.com. We have a Facebook page, Anglo Boer War Podcast, and you can direct message me on Twitter. At Des Latham. Goodbye.